and that service, there was almost 90 in there. And there was, and it took, uh, till, it took 24 minutes. Well, this crowd we did it in 17. So you might get done by noon today. Just don't hold your breath. We'll see in a few minutes here. And so we're here in Ephesians chapter number three. And today we're going to look at Paul's petition in his prayer. And then we will, uh, next week, we'll take a break and I'll have a Christmas message. And then the, fall, the last Sunday of the year, we'll finish the book of e- chapter number three of Ephesians and keep on going forward. And so we're here today. Last week we looked at Paul and his pattern of prayer. Today we see Paul getting into this prayer, and it says back in verse number 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, after all that he's talked about from chapter 1, chapter number 2, and chapter number 3 up to this point, Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees. And he's going before God and praying for those there in Ephesus that he's talked all these things to. What I want you to realize is, Paul has just gotten done telling all of them all that they have in Christ. All that they have available, open to them. And then Paul solidifies it all by praying a prayer that they would take what they've got in the Lord and use what they've gotten and move forward for the glory of God. That's what we see here. Today, my message is a deeper message than normal. And I know we don't have a bunch of deep thinkers in this service. I'm not a deep thinker most of the time. And so we're going to have to pay attention a little bit extra this morning to get the truths that are found here. And I'll do my best to, to relay them here. But they're going to be a little bit, it's a little deeper this morning. So put your thinking caps on and we'll see what happens this morning. And Paul's prayer here is very interesting. Very different than prayers that a lot of us pray. You see, there are some things that are missing from Paul's prayer that we normally pray for. We normally pray a lot for physical things, right? You know, you have a sore toe, you might pray that, that toe feels better. You might have a doctor's appointment, you might pray for the results of that doctor's appointment. You might pray for a friend that has cancer, whatever the case may be. We pray a lot of prayers for physical needs. Sometimes we pray for material things. Maybe there's something, a need that we have. Maybe you have a car that barely works, and every time it starts, it's a miracle, like a Red Sea miracle, that it even turns over. And you need a car, and you pray, God, help me get a car. It's a material need. And then there's prayers that we pray made financial. Or at the middle of the month, you want to get your kids Christmas presents. (coughs) But if you get them Christmas presents, you're not going to have money to pay the bills come January 1st. You're trying to balance all that out, and you might pray for those things. But we don't see any of those things here in Paul's prayer. Nothing physical, nothing material, nothing financial. You say, well, is it wrong to ask God for things? No. God says, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And God wants to hear from you. God wants to hear the requests that you have. God wants to hear all those things. But the problem is, most of the time, that's all we pray for. That's where our prayers end. It's all about the physical and the material and the financial things. And Paul's prayer focuses on the spiritual things. You've got to realize something. Spiritually speaking, spiritual things are going to last way more than material things are. Spiritual things are going to last way more than financial issues. Spiritual things are going to last way more than anything else. But when we pray to the Lord, we lack praying for spiritual things. And this prayer that Paul prays for the church at Ephesus is all spiritually minded on spiritual things. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with praying for other things, and you should take your request to God. I believe in the life of a believer, there needs to be more prayer. I'm going to lose that microphone when I do that. 
There needs to be more prayer when it comes to spiritual things. And so this morning we're going to look at some things that Paul mentions here for the church at Ephesus and see how we can apply it to our lives as well this morning. Number one, we see, and if you got an outline there, number one, we see in Paul's petition and prayer, we see number one, he prays for their spiritual power. He prays for their spiritual power. Verse number 16 says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. The word might, he wants that we'd have might. That word might is where we get the word here in English for dynamite. Powerful. That's what it's saying here. The Bible says here, Paul is saying that his first petition is for spiritual power, that we would have might, that we see there in verse number 16, might by his spirit in the inner man. You see, Christian, this morning, inside of ourselves, we do not have the power we need to do what we need to do on our own. The power that we have comes from the Holy Spirit. And when you think of a stick of dynamite blowing up, that's the example of the word here. That's the might that God can give us through his Holy Spirit to do the things that he's called us to do. You see, when we talk about he prays for spiritual power, letter A, we see the arena of this power. Paul prays that this power would be revealed in the inner man. You ask yourselves, what is the inner man? I'm glad you asked this morning. Man, has, man is a three-part being, correct? Yes, man is a three-part being. A body, a soul, and a spirit. That's what man is. So what is the inner man? When the Bible refers to the inner man, it's referring to the soul. What is the soul? The soul is you. It's your emotions. It's your will. It's you. It's what makes up you. You see, your body is your body, but without the soul, that body will die, right? Someday the body will end and expire, and the soul will live on. Your soul lives on forever, correct? Yes. And so when the inner man is referred to, it's referring to the soul. Other words that are used in the Bible, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It's not talking about the physical beating heart. It's talking about your soul. It's what it's talking about. Sometimes the word, the renewing of your mind, is referring to your soul. All those are. And so we see here the arena of this power. It says in this verse, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. I want you to understand something. Everything we do in life is a result of the decisions we make with the inner man, or our heart, as we like to say, or mind, as it says in scriptures. When the inner man, when the soul is weak, we are subject to be controlled by the flesh, right? Think about it. It's the weakness of the inner man that causes us to respond and lash out in anger. It's the weakness of the inner man that, hel that helps us gossip when we shouldn't be, to steal, to curse, to commit sin, to engage in things that we do. It's weakness in the inner man that leads to that. When Jesus came into our lives, when, he, when you got saved, I know everyone sitting in this room, and I know everyone sitting in this room claims to be a Christian. There are not a lot of services where I can say I know that the, all the people, they say they're Christians. And if you're not saved, then you should get saved. There might be one in here that's not saved. I'm not going to point out fingers or say anything, but you better trust in Jesus Christ. No religion, no good works, nothing else will get you to heaven. 
It's all Jesus Christ. And you need to remember that. You say, Pastor, I just don't like hearing that all the time. I say it for your own good. And as I say that, I know of at least one person in here that needs to hear that. Because God loves you and he will save you, but you've got to trust him, not trust everything else. I'll leave that there. I won't carry that any deeper. Before salvation, <coughs> we're dead. What happens when we get saved? The Bible tells us 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. By these ye might be, look at what it says, partakers of the divine nature, which escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, the Holy Spirit of God is that divine nature that comes to live inside of us. And we can be partakers of it, and he comes to live inside of us that we can escape the corruption in this world. So what are you trying to say? Is the Holy Spirit of God that works inside of us to reform us and remake us into the image of God? See, the Bible talks about often how we're supposed to renew the inner, right? Renew ourselves the renew, by the renewing of your mind. We should be renewing the inward man. We'll look at that verse in a minute. The inward man, if we feed the inner man the word of God, engage in prayer to God, and encounter God through preaching and worship, the inner man is strengthened to do what the inner man's supposed to do. When the nurturing of the inner man is neglected, the life of the believer never rises to the heights of spiritual fulfillment that could take place. A commentary that I've read on the book of Ephesians, John MacArthur is the writer of it, and he talked about the power of the inner man. This is what he said. He said that he mentioned a guy by the name of Julian Ellis Morris. He said, Mr. Morris was English, and he was a very rich and eccentric man. Man, He liked to dress like a tramp and would sell razor blades, soap, and shampoo door to door. <coughs> After a day's work, he would return to his beautiful mansion, put on formal attire, and have his chauffeur drive him to an exclusive restaurant in his limousine. Sometimes he would not do that. He would catch a flight to Paris and spend the evening there. This man was rich beyond measure, a millionaire. But he would dress like a tramp is the word that is used there. He would dress down and go sell things. Did he need to sell the things he did? No, he had all the money he needed. And the commentary goes on to say this. Many Christians live something like Mr. Morris. They spend their day-to-day lives in apparent spiritual poverty and only occasionally enjoy the vast riches of his glory that their heavenly Father has given them. How tragic to go around in tattered rags of our own inadequacy when we could be living in the superabundance of God's unspeakable riches. But that's how we live our lives. God's given us so much and given us so much that we can do, and we live like we're spiritually bankrupt. But this morning, we are spiritually wealthy in the Lord. You see, this morning, when we talk about this power, we talk about the arena of it, the inner man, we talk about letter B, the abundance of it. The abundance of this power. Look at what Paul says here. He prays that their spiritual power would be according to the riches of his glory. He's praying that God would bless them according to God's spiritual wealth. That's quite a request right there. You think about it. God is spiritually wealthy. He's physically wealthy. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He paves the streets of heaven with gold. Think about all those things. But when we talk about the abundance of this power, the Bible talks about the phrase here, he used the riches of his glory. It speaks about the spiritual attributes and abilities that belong to God and who he is. You can have way more than what you ask for. 
The problem is, most Christians, you have not because you ask not. We are spiritually bankrupt when we have a God who will give us spiritually all that we need and then some. The abundance of this power. Most Christians live like spiritual paupers. And in fact, you're the possessor of limitless spiritual wealth. There was a young man who was on a railroad platform years ago begging money for food. He walked up to an elderly man and said, Sir, could you spare a dime? The old man turned. The young man saw the face of his father looking at him who he hadn't seen in 18 years. The father immediately recognized his son and embraced him and through tears said, A dime? Why, my son, I've been searching for you for 18 years, so I give you everything I have. There is no lack of power. There's no lack of blessing. There's no lack of glory for the people of God. The apparent lack we have in our day and age that we live is because we don't, by faith, ask God for the things that he will give us. You want spiritual power? Ask him for spiritual power. Ye have not because he asked not. You have a spiritual bank account that is limitless, and you haven't written one check out of your checkbook, and God has limitless possessions for you. There's no lack. The lack of these things exists because why? We are more concerned with the physical than we are with spiritual things. God's power and glory are limitless, and they're accessible to us. The only way they're not accessible to us is when we limit them by not yielding to him. Which leads us to letter C, the application of this power. Paul prays, look at what it says there in the verse, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Paul prays that the inner man might be strengthened with might by his spirit. The only power we have in our lives, it comes from one place, the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, but ye shall receive power. When? After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you power that we need, the power that lies within us, is not within us and ourselves. That power is there from the Holy Spirit of God. That's where that power comes from. And this is what we got to remember. The lost sinner, before salvation, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, correct? But when Christ came in, we became a new creature, right? Old things are passed away, all things are become new. That inner man's brought to life and is made a new creature, and that inner man, and what happens is that inner man needs to be, he needs to grow. He needs to be renewed. How does he get renewed? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You're renewed through the word of God. You're renewed through prayer. You're renewed through these things. But what I want you to understand something is, you look at yourself. When you get saved, you have an old nature and you have a new nature, correct? Yeah? Old man is still there. I would love for the old man to be gone in my life, but the old man is still there. Look what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, verse number 16. For which cause we faint not. But look what it says. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And you see, church, this morning, I think we understand the outward man is perishing. I'm only 34. I realize compared to some of you sitting in the room, I'm still a young buck. But there were... At 24, I could run and do certain things that I could do for hours at 24. If I do all those things, I play a bunch of basketball today at 34, the next day, I'm going to be feeling it. I might feel it for a couple days. And you know, when I get to be some of your age, I don't even know how you get up out of bed. I don't know how you do any of the things that you do. But I'm teasing myself that. One thing that we realize, this outward body, every day it's perishing more and more. Our bodies wear out. 
and this body that you're wearing, it's going to wear away. That's life. The things you used to do, you might not be able to do anymore. And in this body, you'll probably not do some of the things again. But though the outward man is perishing, the Bible says the inward man's renewed day by day. Outward man, this body, this shell, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be gone at some point. It's temporary. The inward man is an eternal thing. And we got to keep feeding it and keep renewing it and keep doing the things. Look what it says, verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Verse number 18 says, while we look not the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. The things of this life, a lot of them, they're temporal. They're going to pass. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's why, Christian, we focus so much on the temporal things in life and that outward man. But no matter what you do, the outward man is perishing. You can do all you want to, but there are going to be more wrinkles that appear on your face over time. You might not be as tall as you once were at some point. You might start going down just a little bit. Because the outward man is perishing. You can't change that. Say, well, then I'm not. No, you do, your, do all that you do for the glory of God. You know? So do, you know, you want to use those face creams to keep those wrinkles away a few more years. Use those face creams to keep those wrinkles away a little bit longer, whatever the case may be. But though the outward man's perishing, we got to focus more on the inward man. We need to renew that inward man day by day. That comes, how do you, think about this, what, do, what does it mean for the inner man to be empowered by God? It means that our spirits come under the control of the Holy Spirit. It means that we yield to Him and let Him work in our lives. When this happens in our lives, we grow stronger. The inner man grows stronger and is able to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Only when we yield to Him can we live a life that's pleasing to Him. Paul's prayer here was for spiritual power. And let me just say this this morning. One thing that every Christian needs today in 2019, going into 2020, we need the power of God on our lives. When's the last time you prayed and asked God for spiritual power in your life? You've got to remember this too. No man can serve two masters. If you're always doing the works of the flesh, you cannot do the work of the Spirit. You either walk in the Spirit or you walk in the flesh. You can't do them both at the same time. We need to be more concerned about the inner man. And Paul prayed here that they would be there will be power from the Holy Spirit in the inward man. May God help us to ever seek and to have spiritual well-being and to do the things that we should. He see, number one, he prayed for their spiritual power. Number two, he prays for their spiritual passion. Paul turns from praying for their spiritual power to praying for their spiritual passion. Look at verse number 17. <coughs> it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. His prayer is for the believers to be filled with the love of God that manifests itself in a love for God and a love for others. Notice here with me the ways Paul prayed for the spiritual love life and what it needs to be. We see letter A. We see the root of this passion. It's an interesting phrase found in verse number 17 at the beginning of it. Was the book of Ephesians written to save people or unsaved people? Saved, right? So saved people, when we're saved, that means the Lord lives inside of us, correct? But look at what verse 17 says. It's kind of an interesting way it's worded here. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Well, if you're saved, doesn't he already dwell in your heart? Is that true? Yes, it is true. He does. The moment of salvation, he does. It's very interesting what this, you say, well, why is Paul asking for God to do something that he's already done? 
You've got to understand what Paul's asking for here. It's a little different than what you think. He prayed that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The word dwell, this is what the word dwell means. To settle down, to be at home. The idea of the word dwell here means to be comfortable at home. That's what it means. So totally different when Jesus came and dwelt among us, as it talks about in John chapter number one. That word means tabernacle. That means he tented, a temporary station of living. He may dwell in your hearts. The word dwell there means to be comfortable at home is what it's saying. Now, it's interesting. Think with me for a minute. This is going to take a little bit of thinking. Put your thinking caps on. You can do this with me. The idea here is that Christ will not be comfortable in the house of our hearts until our hearts are controlled by the Holy Spirit. He lives in our hearts from the moment of salvation, but he's not at home till we yield and let the Holy Spirit work. You think about it this way. Let's say you moved in with a new family. You got a new family, moved into their house, and they want you to be part of their home, and they invite you in. The only problem is they're pigs. They don't wash the dishes. They don't clean the floors. They don't take out the trash. They don't pick up after themselves. They never take a bath. They never change their baby's diapers. They leave food out on the, out on the sink, on the counter. They, their food's everywhere. All these things happen. They never sweep. They never mop. They never dust. The house is full of all sorts of creepy, crawly things, including children. It's a deplorable mess. Would you feel comfortable in that house? I would say no, right? You want to go watch a Laker game on the couch, and there's food and stuff everywhere. It's a mess. Is, are you going to be very comfortable? No. You're not going to be comfortable there until the room's cleaned up, correct? So think with me for a minute. The same is true with a believer. This verse is not talking about salvation. It's talking about sanctification. The Lord dwells in our hearts by faith, but he's not at home inside of us. He's not comfortable there till we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit and clean up the things that are in our life. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is Jesus comfortable inside of you? What sin have you not dealt with? What areas of your life are not what they should be to where the Lord doesn't feel at home inside of a believer? We are the temple of God, correct? We're supposed to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are God's. How many Christians make God feel at home inside? If, you, if I were to tell you today that Jesus talked to me and said he was going to go to your house for lunch today, oh man, imagine what that would be like. You would run home, you wouldn't, even, you wouldn't even stayed for church. You would have left. You want to make sure everything's just right. You'd make sure there was no dust anywhere. Make sure the bathroom's just right. Make sure the trash is out. You'd have everything spotless and perfect. You'd probably look through your cabinets and make sure there's no books that shouldn't be out that the Lord shouldn't see. You'd probably make sure that there's some movies and things that aren't there for him to see. You'd probably put your laptop away and put your phone away so that he couldn't just see certain things on there. And you'd want to make sure everything was perfect so Jesus could come eat dinner in your house. Jesus lives inside of you each and every day. Is he comfortable there? Or is he like, oh, I'm God, and look at all this filth that I gotta be around. Not right the things that Christians do. You have God living inside of you. And if anything, it should help us clean up our, and you're never gonna be perfect. You'll never get the idea you're gonna be perfect. But a lot of us could do a lot better at cleaning up inside so the Lord's comfortable inside of us. Is the Lord comfortable inside of you? Or is he giving his hands to, you know, hand sanitizer? Look at where they got me. What are you like on the inside? Filth that we put the Lord through. Think about that one. 
I'll let you keep thinking about that and we'll keep moving on. Christ lives there. He should feel at home. See letter A, we see the, the root of his passion. Christ may dwell, it says there, in your hearts by faith. And look at the next thing, the reality of this passion, letter B. As Paul continues his prayer, he asks that they be rooted and grounded in love. These words speak of putting down roots to give a strong foundation, or that of being stable and established. Paul is praying for the maturity for the believer. Say how? Do you realize the evidence of a life that is, has the power of God on it and that's yielded to the Holy Spirit of God, do you know what the main evidence of that life is? Love. This shall all men know that you're my disciples if ye love one another. How do we know and what's the, what manifests itself in us if we are yielding ourselves to the Spirit of God and we have the power of God in our lives and we're living the life that we should for the Lord, it's going to be displayed by our love. That's the truth. When a person gets saved, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse number 5, and hope maketh not a shame. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. The Holy Spirit of God, he, the Bible says here that he sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God. That's why the Bible tells us that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. That's from 1 John chapter 4. When we get saved, the Lord sheds abroad in our hearts his love. And his love does things inside of us. The love he gives us helps us love him. And the love that he gives us helps us love one another. That's why that new commandment, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you that ye love one another. As I have loved you and ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if ye have love one to another. You see, when the Spirit of God controls us and we're walking in his power, we will prove it by the way we love God and by the way we love one another. That's why, what is the, great, what is the first and great, second commandment? Old Testament, there were ten. Jesus gave two in the New Testament. You say, what's the difference? The ten that covered in the Old Testament, the two in the New Testament cover all ten and two. What's the first one? That you love God with everything you have, correct? The great commandment. And the second is to love thy neighbor as thyself. Say, that's hard to do. A Christian that is filled with the Spirit of God and has the power of God on their life, that love is manifested in us and we will love God and we'll love one another. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's how people know that we're followers of the Lord because there's going to be power there. That power produces love. Do you realize what the first fruit of the Spirit is? It's love. Love. Love's the key. Someone wrote many years ago, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse pointed that love is the central to the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.22. This way he said, love is the key. Joy is love singing. Joy is love, I mean, peace is joy resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is, God's, is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. Self-control is love holding the reins. In other words, there can be no fruit of the Spirit and thus no evidence of the presence of the Lord apart from love in our lives. When the fruit of the Spirit is absent, the power of God's no place on us. And just because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us doesn't mean you have to have His power in your life. You can have His power, but are you willing to yield to Him and let Him work? As we yield to Him, we will produce His fruit. And you want to see if you're filled with the Spirit of God and have the power of God on your life? Check how your love life is to God and to one another. You know why our churches have so much division in them? Because we don't have the power of God in them. 
And as the power of God is in this place, God's people will love him and they'll love one another. There will be no division. Divisions come because we have a lot of powerless people. We need the power of God. And we don't hear a lot of preaching in this neighborhood of things in our world today. Turn on the radio, turn on, look on the internet, do all the different places. Don't hear a lot of things like this, but it's the truth. You want to be the Christian you're supposed to be? Then you better yield yourself to the Holy Spirit of God and let him work. As he does, he'll produce inside of you his fruit. And love will be the, that's where it all begins. That love will be expressed to others. And we'll talk more about this in just a second. And what I want you to understand as we talk about this is, think about it this way. Jesus said, and I gave you a few minutes ago, we talked about, but Matthew 22, verse 37 and through 39. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And, thou sh- and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Paul echoed these thoughts in Romans chapter number 13 and verse number 8. He said, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. That's what we were just talking about. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It covers all of those things. You will not commit adultery. You're not going to kill. You're not going to steal. You're not going to bear false witness. You're not going to covet if you just love people like you're supposed to. So Paul says, verse number 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, God wants his people to be rooted in his love and built up through loving others and and by being loved by others. Paul's prayer was for the church then for that, and that's Paul's prayer for us and God's prayer for us today. We see, let us see the results of this passion. You see, when we are rooted and grounded in the love of God, we will be in a position at the end there, verse number 19, it says, or verse 18, when we are rooted and grounded in love, look at verse number 18, we will be able to comprehend what is comprehend with all saints was the breadth, the length, the depth, the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. You see, as the love of God is working out, worked out towards us and in us and through us, it makes God's love more understandable to all who experience it. Now I told you this morning, it's going to be a little bit of a deeper message. Don't lose me here. I hear many people, I just don't feel God's love. I don't feel like God loves me. I don't understand, I got to understand something. God showed you his love at Calvary. Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. He showed us his love. When we get saved, that love he has for us is shed abroad in our hearts. And as we yield to him, and as we have power in the Holy Spirit, as we yield and let him work, and as we are rooted and grounded in everything we do is based in love for the Lord and love for one another, we will begin to understand what Christ's love is all about. Why people don't understand what God's love is all about is because they have God's love and they do nothing with that love. 
But as you take God's love and you're filled with the power of the Spirit of God and as you take that love and you love God in return and you exalt your Savior and you love Him with everything that you have and as you do those things, you take that love He's given you and you love your neighbor as yourself and you do what God's told you to do, you're going to start to understand what His love is all about and be like, whoa, man, that love. When you do nothing with His love, you're not going to ever understand it. And most people never understand the love of God. As you take the love he's given you and give that love back to him and display it for the world around you, you're going to begin to comprehend what his love's all about. When it talks about the breadth, the length, the depth, the height, all those things, it's not talking about four different types of love. It's talking about the vastness, the fullness of his love. His love's unmeasurable. No love could compare. When we talk about the love of Christ and the love that he has, when we think about it, the love is wide enough to embrace the whole world. God so loved the world he gave his son. His love is long enough to last forever. Nothing can wear it out. <coughs> his love is a love that's high enough to take sinners to heaven, which I'm thankful for. His love is a love that's deep enough to take Christ to the very depths to reach the lowest sinner. Christ's love is incomprehensible. But Paul's prayer for our comprehension is that we may have power together with all the saints to grasp it. Literally to take hold of it and seize it. He knows it's impossible, but he calls us to this grand spiritual exercise for the health of our soul and renewing. That's how the renewing process works. When we're controlled by the Spirit of God and filled with his love, we're brought to a place to where we can begin to comprehend the vast and measurable love of God. The word comprehend, it means to grasp, to lay hold on. And only as his love fills us can we grasp what his love means. And only when his love flows through us can we know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. To know his love and to show his love is an experience. It's like experiencing a miracle in your life that none other could ever happen. Have I lost you yet or are you still with me? Still there? We're almost there this morning. Rounding the finish line. You see, number three, lastly in Paul's prayer, we see he prays for their spiritual prosperity. Paul's final petition for the Ephesian believer is that they might be filled with the fullness of God. What a request that the finite being could hold the infinite. How could something so small contain someone who, feel, who fills all things? When I think of being filled with the fullness of God, I always think of the ocean. How many of you like going to the ocean? How many of you like the ocean? How many of you don't like the ocean? Oh, a few hands. Marie and Jennifer, Jennifer, why don't you like the ocean? I don't like sand, my thing. I, I like watching the waves, like all that. I hate sand. I know that in Genesis chapter number three, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God cursed the ground. That's when sand first appeared. There was no sand on earth before that time. Sand gets everywhere. It's just awful. Sand is just... Oh. It's in the desert and it's sand. I just don't get it. I'd be perfectly fine with a beach that had grass all the way down. I'd be perfectly fine with blacktop all the way down. I'd be fine with me. It'd be just fine. Get rid of the sand. I'd even rather have a mud pit than have sand. It's just something about sand. Sand's just, I hate sand. But one of the things that you stand, you, you, you go up to the mountains. How many, of you, how many of you like the mountains more than you like the beach? Okay, several hands. You stand there and you see all these beautiful mountains around you. You're like, who am I so small and insignificant 
compared to the majesty of this. Or at the ocean, you do the same thing, and there's you, and you see water everywhere. That's what I picture when I picture me trying to get the fullness of God. The ocean is the fullness of God, and then there's me. How can I pack all of that? I know I might have a bigger body than some people on this earth, but I still can't pack all that fullness in here. That's how I picture it. And the Bible says here that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. This is what Christ wants for his church. Imagine, if you will, that we're standing beside the ocean and all you see is all that water out in front of you and we're nothing but insignificant specks of, on the seashore compared to the ocean. Imagine you grab a gallon bucket and you dip that bucket into the ocean. That bucket would immediately be filled with the power and the fullness of that ocean. But our bucket could not contain the fullness of that ocean because it's filled. You've got to think about with the Lord and the way it works. And let me see if I can break this down. I, used, I told everyone last service I used an illustration that I heard years ago, and I don't remember the full illustration. For the past couple of weeks, I've been trying to remember the full illustration. I can't remember the full illustration. I know it was really good. So I hope that I can make you understand what I'm trying to say. We don't need to be like a bucket that's full. You fill it, because that's all that it can, that's all it can be filled with. I heard the, an illustration of a boat that was on the ocean. And the winds blew, the storm came, and the boat eventually sunk to the bottom of the ocean. That's what we need in our Christian life. A boat that's sunk in the ocean is there with all of it. Instead of getting one little bucket with a little bit of power, a little bit of comprehension, a little bit of the fullness of God, we need to be immersed in the whole thing. If you don't get that whole illustration, I'm sorry. I wish I could remember the full illustration. But when the Bible says here to be filled, the word filled means to be full or to be filled to the fullest. It speaks of total domination. And guess what? A person who's filled with anger will be dominated by anger. A person filled with wicked desires will be dominated by lust. A person filled with the fullness of God is dominated by him. That's what we need today. You see, we just need, and the, the whole thing's coming back to me right now. I, I've been, all week long, I've been waiting for this illustration to come back to me. And, wow, I tell you, thank you, Lord, you do it now, but it would have been nice to do it about three hours ago so I could have had it in the last service. It had nothing to do with a sinking ship. It had nothing to do with a sinking ship. I want to be a ship on top of the water because I'm on the water, and that ship can, as the wind blows and everything, I'm still on the water. That water, I'm on him. I'm resting on him. Do you get the picture a little bit better now? Are you getting a little bit better? Instead of being sunk, forget the sunk part. That was... I knew. I'm like, oh. Some of you, you're like, Pastor, you just need help. I do. I literally do. And uh, you all need help too. You come and listen every week. But see, it shows the Lord has to work. If he doesn't work, we're all in trouble. And I'd be in trouble every time I get up and the pulpit. I'm praying all week. You'd, you'd say, well, you should have asked him. I did ask him all week long to help me remember the illustration. And uh, well, what it comes down to is a boat that's in the water without a motor, just sitting there, going to be controlled by the water, the wind that's safe on the water. Yes, you might be able to get a bucket full of water, but really, what's that going to do you at the end of the day? We need to be like a ship that's on the water, letting the Lord direct us and guide us where he wants us to go, resting on him, and dominated by him and letting him control things. You see, you've got to understand something. The Lord wants to dominate your life. He does. But let me just say this. He doesn't force himself on you. He knows what will make you happy and where to get you in life. But he doesn't make you do anything. His goal is for you to be dependent on him. His goal 
is for him to have total domination. Because if we, think about this, if you have the power of God on your life and you yield to the Spirit of God and let the Spirit of God work, and his love that he's given you, you're displaying it and loving him and you're loving one another, and you're growing in that love, you can experience joy unspeakable and full of glory that talks about in John chapter 15. And I should go back. Jesus' last day of ministry before he died on the cross, John 14 through John, through John 17. He went into detail about some of these things. That's where he talked about Shalom, I know that you're my disciples if you love one another. But his love will be manifest and you'll understand it more as he's working in your heart. His love never changes, but your understanding of it will. Let me ask you this morning. Man, you say, that was quite a prayer by Paul. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Look at the things he asked for for the church at Ephesus. You know, a lot of times this is our type of prayer. Lord, bless me and mine and make us happy. Paul's prayer here was more like, Lord, do what it takes to make us more like you. Truly make us happy. How does this passage apply to your life? Do you have power in your life? Do you have Christ? Are you showing Christ's love? Is the Lord comfortable inside of you? Does he feel at home? Do you have his fullness? Are you letting him dominate? Are we running the show? Christian, our lives would be so much better if we had put into perspective all that we've studied so far in the book of Ephesians and see all that we have in the Lord and take what we've been given and use it for his glory. You realize, and I'm giving you some, some insight to the rest of the book, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about all what Christ has done and how powerful the things that he's done in our identity in Christ. The last three chapters are so, after all he's done, this is how you need to live. And Paul is getting ready to get into this is how you live. Before he gets there, he's praying that they'll understand and get the power of God in their life that they'll love like they should and everything be rooted and grounded in love and be filled with the fullness of God so they can do chapter 4, 5, and 6. Big key to the book. You were given some insight there. We need to pray. We need God's power in our lives. We need God's power in our homes. We need it in our church. We need it in all that we do. We need to clean ourselves up and make the Lord feel more comfortable inside of us. We need to have everything that we do rooted and grounded in love and love God like we should. Love our neighbor as ourself. When you do those things, you will experience the fullness of God. You don't do those things, you won't. Father, we thank